Good week. Lots of exercise, shoveling the 400-pound snow. And, and then, of course, because, you know, Tuesday there was no school, um, there was a lot of opportunity for family to be all jammed into the same house at the same time in the same place for an extended period of time. It is well with my soul. <laughs> How'd that go for you? Uh, are any of you like me? Um, maybe, maybe, and, and so, uh, honestly, I think I'm just a little bit more aware of it right now because I know what I'm supposed to preach on this morning. But, but are, are you like me wrestling in your heart with this week and your failures? Don't we do the dumbest thing sometime? I mean, I am thankful, truly thankful, that there is not a tape recorder running all the time that I am talking. It's bad enough they record the messages. If they recorded my interactions with some of you, with staff, with pastors, with elders, with my family, I would be just embarrassed. I should be embarrassed anyway. But unfortunately, and unfortunately at the same time, I was reminded again freshly of, of um, my brokenness. So, so this morning's topic, as we look at Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 16, and this morning's topic really is that we are a broken people in the midst of a huge battle. And the truth is that the, the battles continue to rage. In every single one of our lives, there are battles raging. Um, maybe, maybe I should do this first. This is true if you are in Jesus Christ, okay? And, and just knowing the tenor of the message and where it's going to go, let me, let me jump out here. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, why not? I mean, we're not just a church that likes to talk about how awesome Jesus is because we've got nothing better to do. We're not a group of people who talk about and celebrate Jesus as our hero because that's what we're supposed to do. It says so in our bylaws, Okay, we're a group of people as Uniontown Bible Church, as a, as a pastor, as, forget all of that, as Frank Taylor, I am a man who stands here and will celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done for me because I know where I was and I know how deep his love is for me even in that depth of despair that I was in. We, we, we talk about in Psalm 40 about the miry pit and how God reaches down and, and lifts us out of that miry clay. That's where I was when Jesus reached me. That's where many of us were in this room when Jesus reached them. And, and, and for all of us, what, what we need to do is submit ourselves to his lordship, his authority, his redemption, and cry out with our mouth what our lives prove every day. We are hopelessly broken and unable to do anything about it ourselves. Cry out with your mouth in celebration because even in that brokenness, God loved you. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, for you. Not, and I think sometimes when we say he sent Jesus for us, we think, here, here's Jesus. Well, th there's some of that, but actually a better way to say it is he, Jesus died not just for you, but in your place for you. And Jesus, as you all know, was laid in a tomb and three days later, conquered sin and death as he kicked down the door of that tomb. You know what's awesome? And this is kind of a little foreshadowing in weeks to come. I, I found this amazing. Do so you read the account of the Easter story? 
and the resurrection of Jesus, the stone was rolled away not so Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so you and I could look in and see what happened. Jesus didn't need to move a stone. Stones can't hold him. Graves can't hold him. Nothing can hold him. And so this is completely not the point, but all the point at the same time. How about that? If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, man, but today's the day of salvation. There's nothing fancy you have to do. You don't have to crawl back to your car on your knees. You simply need to bow your head and your heart before him and cry out to him to be your savior. To ask him to be your righteousness and your perfection. And he promises that if you call on him, he'll save you. He'll save you. So that's why we're about Jesus. Not because it's popular or his name looks good on a t-shirt. We're about Jesus because he is all the world to us. And there's days that we're more aware of that than others, aren't there? <laughs> and so if you can't tell, I had a couple of rough ones this week where uh, the flesh was winning. And, uh, and God proved he's bigger than me. And he's bigger than my flesh. And I can still fall on him and call him my father even when I fail. And so as we, as we look this morning, what we're going to find is that for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, the battles are going to continue to rage inside of us. And that shouldn't be something that causes us to, to kind of shrink back into the fetal position in the corner of a room and be like, I don't know if he likes me anymore. No, actually, I'm going to, this is where we're going. The good news is the battle continues to rage, and we'll talk about why that's good news in a few minutes, but we should read our text first before I launch off into a whole different message. Galatians chapter 5, follow along with me, verse 16, Paul says this, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are, are evident. They're sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So, so the idea of the passage we're looking at together today is this. If, if you are here and Jesus Christ is, is your Savior, and if you're waiting for your final redemption and the consummation of your faith to come to you in Jesus Christ, that wonderful day when you see him face to face, that even right now the battle continues on. 
So, so, so let me, let me um, explain this. It talks about the battle that rages. Verse 17 is real clear. It says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, desires of the spirit against the flesh. So, so visually, even though this is going to be a terrible illustration, but just bear with me, okay? So let's say you are here when Jesus saves you and makes you his own. This is right here. And then you are working your way to this point way over here where someday, even in the dark, you will see Jesus in heaven. You will be perfect, you'll be spotless, you'll be blameless, and you'll stand before him and declared clean, and you'll worship him forever, right here. So, so there it is. Here, way over here is where Jesus finds you, and he makes you his own, and way over there is where you're perfect. Here's the problem. You and I, well, okay, so let me, let me just tell you this. This over here, when you make it here, you're not breathing, all right? When you make it here, we don't get to see you sitting here with us. When you make it here and you're perfect and you're no longer wrestling with your flesh, you're in glory. The problem is this. We're not here anymore where Jesus first called us and saved us. We're somewhere like here. Now, we like to think we're like right here, but we're actually over here. And so as we are walking in our life, Christ is continuing to mold us and make us and shape us and chisel off the edges, and we're going this way, and then, let's just be honest, there's weeks where we're going this way, and that's the battle that Paul is speaking of here in Galatians. He's saying there is this this battle that continues, the space between the old man and the new man is where the flesh comes into play. And so as you're walking through this, that's what the flesh is. But he says the flesh battles against what? The spirit. He's not talking about your inner soul, your spirit. He's talking about the personhood of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit himself. He is not, just to make sure this is clear, the Holy Spirit is not an it. It's he. He has the very nature and character of God. He's got the attributes of God. He has the personality of God. He is everywhere, all-knowing and all-powerful, just like God is. He can be offended. He can be violated. He can be sinned against, but he is a person of the Trinity. His name is the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be, and and just bear with me on this. I understand full well that when the Holy Spirit gets mentioned in church, we all get a little, because it's kind of like talking about the crazy uncle your family you want anybody to know about. Because you don't understand him, you don't know what makes him tick, you don't know why he keeps showing up, you don't know why he says the things he says, and you just, you just can't wrap your head around him. The Holy Spirit is not the crazy uncle. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead who we must understand and we must drive to understand. So the Holy Spirit, so what does the Holy Spirit do for us? The Holy Spirit, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have been saved by Christ, the Holy Spirit is the one who has regenerated you. He has breathed life into you. We talk about the old man and the new man. He's the one that's given you new life. The Holy Spirit, the moment of salvation, he, he regenerates you. The Holy Spirit has baptized you. It's not like you got saved and all of a sudden you were wet. You're like, where'd that come from? Not, not that kind of baptizing. But you were baptized in that. That's a picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit has baptized into community with the body of Christ. That can be our local body of Christ or the universal body of Christ, the believers across the world who we may actually never even meet, and yet they're still found in Christ. So he, he baptizes us into, into the, 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 the body of Christ, and he baptizes us and, you, and, and unites us with Jesus himself. So the moment of salvation, he regenerates us, he baptizes us, he seals us. 
Man, if you would understand what the, the sealing of the Holy Spirit means for you, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, picture this. When the emperor would create a document, roll it up, take his wax, put it on there and take his, his signet ring and put it into the, his, the depression of the ring into that wax and make the mark in the wax. That's the seal. And what that meant was, unless you are the king or one of his assigned parties, you don't open this. No one will touch this. And so as the Holy Spirit has sealed you into Christ, you are forever in Christ. We are marked kind of like a Christmas present. Don't open until, until we stand face to face with God. We will never fall out of his presence because the Holy Spirit seals us in his presence. The Holy Spirit also indwells us at the moment of salvation. That means he is with us, he is in us, he lives with you, and he will be with you. And that's why this battle rages. Because at this moment, you just had the flesh, which is the desire to find satisfaction in anything but Christ. But as soon as the Holy Spirit gets introduced and you begin this journey, what's happening is your selfish flesh trying to find satisfaction in anything but Christ is now warring against the Holy Spirit who testifies to the goodness and the mercy of Christ and Christ alone. And now there's this battle going on in your heart. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And he says, let me, let me tell you how you can have victory in this battle. Now, if you look at verse 16, it's very simple and yet very complicated because our tendency is to try to flip-flop it. Verse 16 says this, I say this, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. So the answer is, in this journey from old man to new man, in the sanctification process, your responsibility is to walk in the Spirit. The problem is, is when we read verse 16, our legalistic hearts want to say the opposite. This is how you do it. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh, and you'll walk in the Spirit. But that's exactly backwards. It says, no, 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 no. The way you live life is you walk by the Spirit. No, no I'm going to not gratify the desires of the flesh. Like you have that within your power. Most of us can't sit in front. I mean, you don't even have to like chocolate cake. Seriously, you don't. I'm not a big cake guy. But you sit me alone in a room with a huge chocolate cake and the possibility of swiping some of it without anybody noticing is on. Now walk in and we're like, my bad. We can't. We can't control the desires of our flesh, which is why Paul says that's not the way to go about it. The way to go about it is this. Walk by the Spirit. But our legalistic hearts, we want to, again, gain acceptance in God's eyes by doing or not doing. No. Walk by the Spirit. So, how do we walk by the Spirit? I mean, that's the key to this text. How do you walk by by the Spirit. He actually says it later on in verse 25. Let's keep in step with the Spirit. How do we do that? The answer is shortly stated you need to be controlled by Him. So, what does that look like? All right. It looks like Ephesians chapter 5. Why don't you turn? If you have your Bibles, it's all of three pages over. Ephesians chapter 5 gives us an incredible illustration of what it means to walk by the Spirit. 
Paul is in the middle of talking about walking in love, about how difficult that is, how, how we tend to get distracted by a number of different things, not the least of which is time and time management. Some other things come up in this passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Then he gets to verse 18, which is one of the verses that has been ripped out of context more often than any other verse in the entirety of Scripture because it proves a point, although the, the, the way they use the verse actually doesn't prove the point they're trying to prove. What Paul is doing here in this text, he's saying, I am going to paint a picture for you so you understand what it means to walk in the Spirit or to be filled with the Spirit. And the picture he uses, quite honestly, in good uh, evangelical circles makes us uncomfortable. But it's a great picture. He says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. That's usually where we stop on this verse. See? Don't get drunk. We'll we'll talk about that in a second. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So before I go on, let me make sure that there is no question about one thing, and it's this. To be drunk is sin. Done. I don't want you to hear me say anything else or take anything else that I say and and change the context. To be drunk is sin. There's no caveats. There's no exceptions. Don't hear anything else that I say without clearly understanding that. To be drunk is sin. What Paul says here is every single one of us knows what being drunk looks like. And actually, I would venture to say every single person sitting in this room knows what being drunk looks like. He says, this is going to make an excellent opportunity for me to share with you what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He lays this picture out. So to be drunk, I'll give you the formal definition, like you need that. It's to be under the influence where any other influences do not demonstrate as much control as the thing with which you are intoxicated. So to be drunk is to be under the influence. Any other influences do not demonstrate as much control as the thing with which you are intoxicated. So, this may be a dumb question, so I will answer it myself so that way we don't get any crazy answers. How does someone get drunk? Um, He drinks. And he doesn't just drink a little. He imbibes. He's not the picture of self-control, but he totally yields control to the alcohol. So even if for some people that's a slow process, they're continually making the decision to introduce a controller into their system, a controller that will eventually take over and eventually lead you to dancing on rooftops with a lampshade on your head. Okay, maybe not you, but there's a little peek into my past. (laughs) Not this week. I said this week was rough. Not for that reason. When you are drunk, it will control your speech, it will control your behavior, it will control your appearance, it will control your actions. The outcome of being drunk, Paul gives it to us in Ephesians 5.18, debauchery. So what Paul does in an, again, I say expertly because he is an expert communicator, but even more than that, it's through the Holy Spirit's inspiration that Paul wrote that. 
So this picture is perfect. He says, now see, what I want you to understand is you should not be controlled by alcohol in that manner where nothing else controls you. The only thing controlling you in that moment is the alcohol, and then it's controlling your actions, your behavior, your appearance, your, your motivations, your speech. It controls everything that you do. He says, Don't, do not get controlled by alcohol in that way. No, be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. So how does one get filled with the Spirit? He yields himself to the will of God. He willfully submits himself to the control of the Spirit. He consciously makes the decision to allow God himself to control his speech, his actions, his behavior, and his appearance. And might I say, being controlled by the Holy Spirit, there are times where I might end up with a lampshade dancing on your car. Being filled by the Holy Spirit may not be an immediate thing. It may be a slow process. But all along the way, the more often one yields himself to the Spirit, one is under his control. See, what Paul's doing in Ephesians 5.18 is using an illustration, and we miss the point. We run to that to try to prove that drunkenness is a sin. You, you actually don't even need to run to that to prove it. It's throughout Scripture. It's, it's easy to see. But, but here what he's saying is, I want you to understand, you've all seen somebody intoxicated. That's how I want you to be with the Holy Spirit. I want you to be intoxicated, be completely filled with the Holy Spirit so that your actions, your appearance, your behavior, your submission, your love, your, 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 your service to one another is controlled by God and God alone, and you can't help yourself. What, what is the outcome of being drunk? It's debauchery. What's the outcome of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, Ephesians 5.19 tells us it's renewed worship and fellowship as we um, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and we sing and, and make melody to the Lord, with us, to the Lord in our hearts. It's, it's the result of being filled is now all of a sudden I'm going to worship more and adore more and I'm going to fellowship with you even more. Another response to being filled with the Holy Spirit is chapter 5, verse 20, where he says it's be thankful for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the results of that is renewed thankfulness. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the results is renewed submission, Ephesians 5.21, submitting one to another out of the reverence for Christ. See, when you yield yourself to the Holy Spirit and only to the Holy Spirit, and you're intoxicated by the Holy Spirit, and He is controlling everything you do, everything you say, every place you go, every desire of your heart. The outcome is renewed worship and fellowship. It's a thankfulness that you didn't have before, and it's a submission to serve, love one another around you. It's interesting that that's what he says just before he launches into a description of marriage. It says, you want, you want a good marriage? Better be filled with the Holy Spirit, because it ain't easy. You want to you understand what it means? You must love your wife like Christ loved the church. Well, at least he didn't set the bar too high. There's only one way to do that, men. It's to live your life consistently filled with the Holy Spirit, crying out to Him, calling out to Him. And how, how does that filling come? What does that actually look like? It actually looks like John chapter 15, where Jesus tells His disciples, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me. 
As we abide in the vine, fruit comes on the branches. No fruit grows separate from the vine. And so we must yield ourselves and abide in him. So, so it's, 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 it's ridiculous, but Paul's illustration is awesome. How do you stay drunk? You keep drinking. How do you stay filled with the Holy Spirit? You keep submitting. It's a great picture for us that sometimes we completely miss that we need to understand as we consider the battle that happens from point A to point B and the wrestling between the flesh and the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Then Paul does something I wish he wouldn't do in verse 19 of our text. He says, here's the works of the flesh, like we needed a list, Paul. It's fairly evident, isn't it? The problem is this, and, and, and maybe the problem isn't the right way to say it. The way that I see the list that he lays out in Galatians 5, starting in verse 19 or verse 20, is that some of the sins that he lists, some of the works of the flesh that he lists out for us, we would go, yeah, no kidding, that's a sin. That's pretty obvious. But some of the other ones, I think sometimes we look at those not as so sinful as the other ones. So, for time's sake, I'm not going to go through every individual one, and if you read along with me, you're probably saying, praise God. Um, I will mention them, so buckle up. Starting in verse 19, so these are the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. I'll, I'll stop there. The, the idea with those three, it's, it's pretty easy to pick up on what he's saying, but it's, it's really throwing off all restraint and flaunting yourself sexually. It's... Uh, this is soapbox time, sorry. Sex is a beautiful gift from God. And it's beautiful within the boundaries that God has given it to us. And the problem and the difficulty that we see in our culture today is that we have taken sex and done one of two things. <clears throat> the church has tended to deny the beauty of the sexual relationship, and the world has tended to exalt it to be a god. See, what we need to understand is that in marriage, the boundary with which God set up sexuality, sex is to be rejoiced in, celebrated, participated in, unrestrained between husband and wife. And it's a beautiful gift that God has given to us. But in our brokenness, we've taken sexuality out of it. I mean, we've just ripped it right out of God's boundaries, and we've kind of placed it wherever we want it to be, and we've made sex something it's not. not it's, we've made sex something that God never intended it to be. We, we've made sexuality not just a God, but, but we've made it an idol. We, we've actually, and, and you see this everywhere you look, we have made sexuality what we base our identity on. And sex was never created to withhold that weight. That, it's, it's any time you have an idol, you, what you end up doing is you take a, well, and actually this is the text too, when he talks about the desires of the flesh, really that can be translated the over-desires of the flesh. It's, it's good desires just gone way too far and made way wrong. And so anytime you take something that is good, that God has given to you, and you elevate it to a place where now it's God, it's an idol, well, it was never built with the foundation to carry that weight, and so it will always fail you. Always. 
It, it, it can't possibly sustain you. It can't possibly give you all that you want it to give you. And so within our culture today, we, we see sexuality ripped out of the boundary that God had established for it, where it is beautiful and precious and priceless and, and meaningful and, and, and helpful to our, our sanctification and to our relationship with our spouse, and we've turned it into this thing. Yeah, I'll keep going. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery. I'll be honest with you, I, I don't deal with sorcery with Uniontown people every day. Thank you, by the way, for that. <laughs> but the idea between, behind the idolatry and sorcery, for idolatry it's much easier to see it. Idolatry is to take anything and make it a substitute for God. Sorcery, interestingly enough, if you look at the, the etymology of the word, it comes from the same root word that we get the word pharmacy from. And the idea is this, we're faking a work of the Spirit of God around us. We're manufacturing something that actually doesn't exist there. So instead of trusting in God, people try to manipulate circumstances to bring about the end that they desire. So, so sorcery then turns somebody's trust in the living God to dependence on other sources. The other ones, and I'm not going into detail so you, you can breathe, that are pretty obvious at the end of 20 or beginning of 21 there, drunkenness, orgies. The, the idea there, again, is a singular idea of taking what is good and making it a God. So even in drunkenness, uh, okay, and I know for those who do not struggle with addictive behaviors and addictive lifestyles, alcohol in and of itself, is not wrong. Taken to its fullest, um, taken to the place where it becomes God, and you must have an alcoholic beverage. So let me, let me, let me bounce back to the Ephesians 5 chapter. So if you can't wait to get home to have a beer, what's controlling you? The desire for the beer. And so I would say in that moment, you are now intoxicated, as Paul would use it in Ephesians chapter 5. You are under the control of that substance. So what Paul says here is, I'm not saying alcohol is wrong, I'm saying drunkenness becomes this huge problem because you take this good gift from God and you abuse it. Orgies, okay? Being real careful here, same thing. You take a wonderful gift from God and you abuse it. What you do is I'm going to participate in drunkenness. Or I'm going to participate in these things. I'm going to give myself to these things. And in so doing, I'm going to find a peace, a rest, a release. I'm going to, my soul will just be able to, to, oh, just for a little while, unwind. And that's the problem. Because what you just did is you gave what was God's to another. Because in Him and in Him alone are you supposed to find those things. Addictive behaviors, anything you would give yourself fully to in the hopes that it brings fullness to your life rather than Jesus Christ. Addictions, trying to find satisfaction in anything else other than God. And Paul says that is a work of the flesh. I think if I stopped with that list, we would all walk out of here and be like, I know exactly the type of person he's talking about. The problem is, um, Paul kind of puts right in the middle of those really heinous sins, because those are the bad ones, right? No. 
Because equal with those sins, he lays out these ones. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. So, so what do those mean? Well, let's, let's walk through them. Enmity. Enmity is antagonism toward other people. Strife, it's conflict. It's quarrels from a conflict. It's saying bad things about another. Jealousy, it's fueled by selfishness and lack. It's seeking a self-glorification, an irateness that comes when I don't get what I think I deserve, but you have. Fits of anger, outbursts, rage, intense flashes of anger that are poured out on others. Rivalries, it's this, it's this weird tribalism that, that happens when people of the same complaints find each other. If you haven't figured it out yet, these are church sins. Dissensions. People think of one another as them. Divisions. That is a permanent separation from each other. That's the the final outcome of these things. It's just, bam, that's it. There's two teams and we're never joining. We're separated forever. Envy, not satisfied with what God has given. Angry that, that you may have it and that you get to enjoy it, but I don't. It's interesting to me that when we read about sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, orgies, we're like, yeah, got it. But when I read this list, we're like, yeah, I don't, don't think that's that serious. When in fact, they're equal. See, that last grouping tends to pose itself as righteous indignation, when in fact there's nothing righteous about it. It's an attitude of the flesh, is what Paul calls it. So from those things, you get all sorts of things. You get gossip and backbiting, a spirit of complaining, and inability to see past your opinion or your feelings, and, and to see the feelings and opinions of other people as valued I mean, let's be honest, now, now, we're not a Baptist church, but this is where Second Baptist Church comes from. There's First Baptist Church, what color are you making the carpet? I'm out of here. Second Baptist Church is born. I am not joking. <laughs> That's the worst part. Desires of the flesh, the works of the flesh, when they come out, that's how foolish they look. But let's be honest, to some degree, aren't all of us standing here trying to get there and those things just keep stirring up in our hearts? Isn't it discouraging? Isn't it discouraging to lay your head on the pillow at the end of the day and be like, I can't believe I did that. Isn't it discouraging to hear someone you love call you on your sin while you're in the midst of it? See, that's what happens when the flesh is winning. Hold that feeling for a couple minutes. It's when the Spirit is winning, it looks completely different. It's the fruit of the Spirit. We all know what that is, right? 
So what is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love. That means serving a person for their good, not for anything you get in return. So if you are um, intoxicated with the Spirit, if you are walking in the Spirit, if you are keeping step with the Spirit, if you are continuing to lean on the Spirit as you abide in Christ, and you find Christ more wonderful than than anything else, then as that is happening, what you are going to see is this, this, this fruit start to pop out on your branches, and the first of which is love. The second one is, is joy, and joy is weird because joy isn't based on circumstances. Joy isn't just like, okay, everything's wonderful, yay, oh, macaque, I run over, woohoo. That's not, that's, not, that's not what he's talking about. It's saying, I'm going to delight in God simply because of who he is, not for any other reason, not because of the great gifts he gives me, though he gives me great gifts, though he loves me more than any other, but I'm going to delight in him just because he's him. That's joy. Peace is this confidence and rest that we have in the wisdom and control of God in the darkest of moments. Patience or long-suffering is is facing trouble without those fits of rage, without blowing up. And that that comes from the peace that you have, uh, understanding the wisdom and control of God. Kindness means serving others practically, which leaves you vulnerable. It extends help to those people who will not love you in return. Goodness is integrity. It's being the same in every situation even if it means your own harm. Faithfulness is to be reliable and true to your word, courageous in telling the truth. Gentleness means to be humble and self-forgetful. Self-control means the ability to pursue the important over the urgent, rather than always being impulsive. What Paul says is this, you're walking in the midst of this battle zone, and the the battle continues to rage, and you get so discouraged, but but if you were to abide in Christ and walk by the Spirit, be intoxicated by the Spirit's control in your life, may He be the one that that is is, is the the, the lens through which you see everything. And if that's true, then what's going to start to happen is you're going to start to see Fruit of the Spirit. Now, understand that some people are like, well, so fruit of the Spirit is a Holy Spirit-given thing. It's passive. I can't do anything about it. It's not like I can go, mm, fruit, mm, fruit. It doesn't work that way. So I have to be passive and just sit back. Yes and no. It's passive, but it's active. When you look at that passage we looked at in Ephesians 5.18, it, when it talks about be filled with the Spirit, that is an amazing verb in the Greek. It is an imperative, which means it is a command. You must do it. Be filled. It is passive because you can't do it. It has to happen to you. And it's present means it must be happening at all times. So it is passive, but it's active. It's an imperative. Passive. Present. It must happen, and it must be happening to you all the time. One thing I'd like to encourage you on is, is as it is with real fruit, the growth is gradual. I mean, I don't know what you feed your vegetables, but you don't go to bed one night after you planted a seed and come out and have a whole row of carrots going. It takes time. In fact, it takes so much time that you often don't see the measurable growth, right? It's like, so, so my kids, we have a door jam, they stand in it, we mark the line, 
They try to cheat. They erase the lines. We do it again. They try to get up higher. It's like, oh, how, how far are you growing? Well, one of our children is growing very quickly. But I wouldn't have known that other than looking at the comparison between the lines. So, so oh. the other thing it's like is when you grow old. This isn't talking about any of you. This is me just crying up here, all right? I'm, I'm okay, hair, okay, I don't need to worry about gray so much, except for this stupid thing. And then, no lie, I'm, I'm, of all places, this is terrible. This is confessions of the soul. I'm in my car, I've got the, I'm waiting for somebody. I've got the visor down and the little thing up so I can see the mirror, because, you know, I like to check out my goatee before I go anywhere. I'm looking, and it's like, oh, Oh, that one's gray down there. Oh, that one's gray. And then, don't you dare walk up to me and try to like, and, like, look at me, inspect me. But this morning, I'm like, oh, fixing my eyebrows because that's the only hair I can actually fix. And it's like, my eyebrows are gray. And this morning, I'm back in room 106, and I'm typing on my computer. I look down at my hands. And it's like, oh, oh, my hand modeling career is over. <laughs> do, do I know every day how much older I am now? gradual. The growth in our children is gradual. Do you know how much you're growing in the Spirit every day? Oh, man. It's gradual. It's a beautiful thing when you make it to a point and you stop long enough to reflect and be like, wait a minute. Five years ago, I would have lost my mind in the same situation. But that didn't happen today. How come? Brother, that, that, that's the fruit of the Spirit. And that's where you celebrate the active work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The battle continues to rage. All right, Frank. <laughs> you have been so incredibly encouraging. You, you, or, you, don't you feel terrible when that happens and that happens? Doesn't it feel awful? And you made us feel awful. And you just went, Let's talk about the fruit of the Spirit. What is that all about? Where's this freedom you're talking about? Because I don't know about you, when I fail, it literally is me thinking, God, you must hate me right now. To my shame, I've actually said those words out loud. Where's the joy in that? Where's the joy in the failure? Where's the joy in the struggle? And that's your answer. Freedom and joy is in the fact that you're struggling. See, because before the Holy Spirit was introduced to you back here and breathed the breath of life into you, before He came, the flesh could do whatever it wanted, whenever it wanted, however it wanted to. It didn't matter, but now that the Spirit is in there, now there's a battle raging, and the battle is an evidence of life. So as you wrestle and struggle, as you, as you cry out to God, God, I don't want fits of anger, even though I preach like this. <laughs> a little ironic, sorry. I don't want envy. I don't want jealousy. Why is it there? I'm such a... Stop. <laughs> because what the Spirit is doing is He's putting finger on your soul and saying, right there, that's a work of the flesh. I want fruit, not works of the flesh. There's an evidence of the Spirit's working in you. And there's a reminder that each one of us need to cling to. That every day we need to fight the battles well, knowing that the war is already over. These are battles. These are, we're being sniped at is what's happening. But the victory's already done. That moment that Jesus rose from the dead, he proved that forever we will be living in God's presence with the righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Jesus, worshiping him because of his wonderful love for us, even though we are unworthy.
lovable creatures. See, the the celebration that we should have is this. A Christian is not a person who doesn't have bad desires. A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires by the power of the Holy Spirit. Something worse than war is no conflict at all. That does not mean you've won. It means you've retreated or there's no enemy in you. So take heart if your soul feels like a battlefield at times. Because it means the Holy Spirit is doing His work in you. May we yield to Him. Would you pray? God, your sense of humor amazes me sometimes. Your timing is perfect. Your love is is impossible to completely wrap our head around. And in these moments, as we close just the preaching time, I know that there are people here who struggle with sin every day. I'm one of them. None of us can pretend. But I pray for the soul of the one who is overly discouraged this morning, that in the seat where they sit, that they would know that as that battle rages and they feel the wrestling in their hearts, that that's you. Lord, may each one of us trust you and lean into you and lean on you and enjoy you and see you as you are to be seen, as gracious and wonderful. Lord, I thank you that no matter how difficult it gets and how the battle rages, that you've already won the victory. So Lord, even now as we close our service, may we be reminded of the finished work of Jesus Christ who sits forever at your right hand interceding for us. Thank you for his finished work. It's in his good name I pray. Amen.